1: It's about time, because we're going there. Hey friends, welcome back to another episode of We're Going There. I am your host, Bianca Waters-Oltoff, and today I'm excited to sit down and speak with actor and writer, Zachary Levi. The thing that I love most about this interview, and I hope that you enjoy it too, is that sometimes we can look at an actor or someone with influence or someone in the industry and think, wow, they have it all together. I mean, career, fame, success, good looks. But you want to know something? All of that doesn't heal the pain of wounds that happen from previous trauma. This week, I sit down with actor Zachary Levi for a conversation at the intersection of love and mental health. You might know Zachary from his recent roles playing on-screen champions like Kurt Warner in the film American Underdog, which, yes, I saw on opening weekend, and also from DC superhero films like Shazam. No, I did not see that movie, but my husband did. At just four years old, Zach was bit by the acting bug, and he knew he loved to make people laugh. But underneath the instinctual desire to perform, Zach would go on to struggle with unresolved childhood trauma, and this ultimately would lead him to rock bottom and land him in a treatment facility. Zach was so open about his journey through depression and purpose, he even documented it in his debut book, Radical Love, Learning to Accept Yourself and Others. I'm excited to hear how self-acceptance helped him drown out the voices in his head that told him that he would never be enough. Find out what he calls his deepest desire and how it led him to write this book. I hope you enjoy the interview. Hi, Zachary. It's so great that you're on the show. Thank you for being here.
0: Thank you for having me. Appreciate it.
1: Okay, okay. So I'm really excited about this interview because I didn't know how much of a fangirl I was of you until I started looking at your credits, and I realized, oh, Shazam? Oh, Tangled? Oh, uh, Chuck? I mean, Chuck was one of my favorites, but then most recently, American Underdog? I mean, I think I should put a Z on my chest. I didn't know that I was your (laughs) unintentional cheerleader. I've supported your career. And now I get to have you on the show. So thank you for being here.
0: Well, thank you. And, and, and clearly, you have impeccable taste. So. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yes, ever so humble, too. I love that. Yes. Well, listen, I'm glad that you uh, get to spend time with the listeners and we get to talk about something that you are passionate about in this season, and it is radical love. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm so excited about reading what you are birthing inside of you. Will you talk a little bit about um, kind of what's the impetus? Like, why radical love? And why does love feel radical for you in this season?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, the impetus was I had a major breakdown. I I I, I completely fell apart at 37. Um, it's about five years ago. I I had a lot of just tectonic shifts going on in my life. Got divorced. My mom died. I moved to Austin. I. Uh, I mean, a lot of these over a few years, and and then I when I moved to Austin, I had a I just I had a complete meltdown, and um, I didn't want to live anymore, and then that kind of sent me into this life saving, life changing therapy, and on the heels of that, I booked Shazam, and then when I was promoting Shazam, I felt very obligated to share that part of the journey that you know I wouldn't I would not have gotten that role had I not done that very important work on my heart and on my mind, and. And so in doing that, uh, Harper Collins, uh, saw some of the podcasts that I was doing and heard the message and they said, Hey, we, you know, we think there's a book there and we think it can help some people. And to the extent that I can use any of my journey to help anybody else, I'm always down for that cause. And so that was kind of the impetus for it. And You know, ultimately, so much of what I learned in my journey, and I'm continuing to learn in my journey, is what it means to love myself and to love others. And that, you know, love is not just amplified like. Uh, In fact, we can love those that we don't like, and we need to love those that we don't like. My mother... God rest her soul. You know, she was a very damaged person who um, was abused herself and then never learned how to deal with that, never learned how to love herself. And so that all carried on into us. I mean, this is generational trauma. This is stuff that we recognize very, very um, correctly. And it's real. You know, generational trauma is not a pipe dream. I mean, we're all experiencing this all, all the time. But when I was in this therapy, I didn't realize just how much unforgiveness was still left in me. And I still had so much unforgiveness because I couldn't wrap my head around the idea of, well, how do I, I guess, truly fully accept what my mother did uh, without still being like, well, she shouldn't have done that, you know? Uh, like we all do. I mean, I think, um, you know, some of us have really um, loving parents uh, and and more healthy relationships with our parents, but I, I would say maybe the majority of people don't. Um, I, I don't know that for a fact. I don't know, I don't, I've not, I'm not done any Gallup polls on it, but, um, Majority of people can relate to uh, households that are not quite so functional, not quite so healthy, at least from one parent or another, um, and can can relate to some kind of abuse going on in their life—be it physical, emotional, mental, psychological, whatever. Mine, thank God, was not physical abuse, but very psychological and
1: emotional. Okay, so I have to I have to ask for a second. So we we're we're diving in, and I am so here for it. I just have a question. You are so open and honest, whether it's on social media, whether it's online, whether it's through this book about uh, trauma and uh, generational trauma and having this breakdown. Do you feel like given your platform and the amplified voice that you have for people that do have influence It feels like you're using your influence to kind of open up a conversation and I know it's going to bring healing and health to so many people that can resonate with your story. So before we even dive into like the bigger things, like I just want to know, do you feel like this is an obligation or do you feel blessed to be able to use your platform to share kind of the healing that you've had and the healing that's available for other people?
0: Yes, both. Yeah. I, I I think it's an incredible opportunity. I think it's an incredible, um, look, you know, if we've learned nothing else from Spider-Man, it's that with great power comes great responsibility. And I think that, which is also a biblical tenant, kind of pretty much anyway, but I, I, I think that anybody that has a platform, by the way, we all have a platform. Yeah. Some of us just have a much smaller platform and some of us have much larger platforms and there's a lot of platforms in between. I'm just using whatever platform God's given me to be as authentic a human being as i can be mm. and to use that authenticity to be vulnerable and and i cuz i think vulnerability is a superpower i think vulnerability begets more vulnerability it's it's scary when you start being open but you know i mean i've been doing it for a long time and immediately the response was overwhelmingly positive you know i'm sure there's going to be people that are More closed minded or more judgmental or more fear based or whatever it is. And I got to try to just be patient with them and love them through all that. But uh, by and large, me talking about my own, you know, shortcomings, my own trials and tribulations and struggles and, you know, ways that I am not a perfect human being by any stretch of the imagination allows other people to feel seen and heard and loved and not alone in all of this, because that's, you know, with mental illness, that's one of the biggest Hurdles initially is that you the lie is you're alone, nobody else feels this way, nobody else has ever felt this way. You are uniquely broken, and you're not going to find anybody that fix you or help you or heal you. And that's a lie from the pit of hell. That just you know, that's so so that's why I think that it's it is my responsibility, it is all our of our responsibilities. If we could all actually just be super authentic and vulnerable with one another, this world would be amazing, but unfortunately. A lot of people haven't gotten to that place in their life where they've done that work and they realize that you can override your ego and your survival mechanisms. You don't always have to be right. You don't always have to be perfect. I mean, I struggle with a lot of perfectionism in my life because all of my love was tied to, did I do it right? Did I do it perfect? Did I do it well enough? And that's all lies, you know? So I think we all got to talk about this. And again, light is the greatest disinfectant. The more we can all just shine light on what's really going on in the world, then the sooner we're all going to find healing, I think. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, so one of the things that uh, stood out to me when you were talking about like a lot of there's this preoccupation with like fixing things from the outside, mm. but you said that fixing things on the outside begins on the inside. Can you unpack that a little bit and and shed light? Because I I thought that was so profound and I think like so applicable to what is going on right now. Yeah,
0: I mean, well, really, it, the biggest conclusion I came to is that it has nothing to do with fixing. I'm mm. a I, I'm a a deeply empathetic person, but I have a engineer's brain, I think. I mean, I've always been very drawn to, like there was this book when I was growing up called The Way Things Work. And it was just this big picture book. And you could learn about, you know, how all these various mechanisms or things, elevators, pulleys, um, you know, whatever, uh, how how they all operated. They were all these cross-section illustrations. It was very cool. And I've always liked to figure out not just how things work, but also how things could work better. Why are things not working properly? And I've applied that, unfortunately, to my mind and to my heart. Now, I say unfortunately, because we are not machines. We are not robots. We are not gizmos. We are these flesh and blood organic computers, if you will. But it is not a matter of some one and done fix. It is a journey of healing. It is not a sprint. It's a marathon. And I, even after going through a lot of the incredible life saving therapy that I went through, still was convinced that, okay, I did it. I fixed it. And just like I broke a wrist and I got to get it cast, you know, reset and cast, and it's going to hurt for a couple of months. But once I get the cast off, I'm fixed. I'm good as new. I don't have to worry about it anymore. It's just not how our brains and our hearts work. It's just not. It's much more. I talk about this in the book, but mental health and dental health are are basically, you know, they're very, very similar. And it's not, you know, you don't just like do some super brush and then your teeth are perfect for the rest of your life. That's not how it works. You, every single day, you have to brush and floss. And as a kid, you feel like, ah oh, I don't want to do this. And so, But it's really the simplest little things. It's also self-care. It's a thing that, you know, it's part of our self-care that we need to do and we should do. And we but a lot of us grow up, don't feel like we should even invest that into ourselves because we don't love ourselves that much. We don't know that we don't love ourselves that much. But the daily practice of tending to your mind in the way that you would tend to your teeth, brushing and flossing away all of the lies, all of the bad judgments or assumptions or you know, going to a therapist. Everybody should go to therapy. Everybody. I don't care who you are. I don't care how well-adjusted you are. There's always something that you can unpack with the licensed professional who is a disinterested third party, they have no agenda in guiding you one way or the other, unlike a lot of our friends and family who might love us very much, but also still might have an agenda of who they think we ought to be or how they want our their relationship to be with us. What can they get out of it? A lot of it can be subconscious, but a licensed professional is like, hey, you're paying me to give you honest, real feedback that doesn't benefit me whatsoever. This is just me spending time with you, unpacking your feelings, unpacking your thoughts and helping you to see things perhaps in a, in, a, in a different light and helping us to understand ourselves and the world better and how we fit into the world. And so I think therapy and understanding our own minds is massively important in all of this and a part of that self-care that's, that that we all need to be practicing. But again, as I found, I, there was a lot of self-care practices people were telling me about for a long time. I didn't, I couldn't apply them because I didn't think I was worthy of them you know, until I figured out, oh my God, I don't love myself. And that's a huge heartbreaking revelation to come to. But I'm so glad that I did because I don't know how I would keep moving on with my life had I not recognized, oh, this is a huge part of my life that has been missing.
1: Okay. So in simplistic terms, it sounds like that there is a difference between like fixing and healing. And what did that look like for you?
0: Grace, patience, empathy, you know, when you're fixing something, you don't need to have a lot of grace or patience with it. In fact, a lot of times you're fixing something and you know, you're like, this thing needs to, you know, you got to take a hammer to it or a screwdriver and you're going But it. That's because it's a thing. It's not a heart, it's not a mind. It's not, there's no feelings associated with fixing the thing. We're not things, we are beings and we have to apply patience to the process of healing. You can't, you know, it's like you get a cut if you expect your cut to heal in two seconds and you're angry with yourself because your cut's not healing, that would be ridiculous. Nobody would do that. Well, it's the same thing with our minds. If our if our hearts and our minds are taking some time to heal, okay, that's part of the process. You gotta be patient with that. You gotta be patient with yourself. You gotta acknowledge that, hey, you know, you're doing the best with what you got. Every single one of us, I mean, this is one of the hardest things I think for people to really wrap their head around and swallow, but every person on this planet, I mean, by and large, I think there's, you know, obviously, you know, clinically we can point to a very small percentage, but a percentage nonetheless of people who struggle with psycho, you know, that are psychopaths or sociopaths, you know, and and one could argue that maybe they're born that way. But by and large, everyone else on this planet is ultimately a product of their environment. And we have got to accept that. We have got to know and really radically accept, truly. And then I think through that, radically forgive people for doing bad in the world. They're not inherently evil. They are themselves abused in some way, shape or form and probably have been for quite some time. And our society is not like getting better with that. Mental health is getting worse across the board in large part because of things like social media in large part because of like how that makes people feel. It makes people feel small and inadequate and like failures because we're constantly looking at these curated versions of other people's lives that are not true. And we all kind of know that, but we still don't. I mean, I, I'll i look at social media and I'll look at some of my like, Peer fellow actors and I go, oh man, they seem to have it all together. They're so happy and successful, and look at they got a wife and kids. And what am I doing? I'm like Zach. Whoa, 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 whoa. Calm down, calm down. You are where you are. God's got you right here for whatever reasons, and you are loved. You are worthy of that love. You're doing the best you can with the tools that you were given to you as as a kid, and now as an adult. You know, we don't know what we don't know, which means we only know what we know. And that all comes down to how good did your parents instruct you? And then how much good instruction have you had beyond that? But that's why to me, I mean, radical love is almost redundant because love in and of itself, I think is a is a radical practice. It's like, you know, Jesus back in the day saying, you gotta love your enemy and pray for your persecutor. I don't see a lot of people doing that, particularly Christians. I don't see a lot of them doing it either, right? You know, we do this thing where we go, yeah, I love these people who I feel good about and who love me and make me feel good about myself. Well, great, that's not really love. That's not that's not the radical love that God was talking about that I think we really need to be practicing right now. Because if we don't, we're just going to continue to be bifurcated. Yeah. We, the, the divide, like just our country alone. We are so lost when it comes to coming together. We are the the political, spiritual, philosophical divides are just getting deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper, because on both sides, everyone is looking at the other side like they're monsters. Now, the other side might be doing something that is, you know, not good. There might be uh, legislation that they're passing or not passing or whatever that seems like a no-brainer, like, guys, can't we come together and do this? But it doesn't mean that they're evil. It doesn't mean that they're monsters. It means they grew up in a whole lineage of, well, this is what my morals are. And then over here, you got these people growing up. Well, this is what my morals and and CODA are. Well, they're very different. Can't we not just see that and say, hey, I get it. I don't agree with you. I don't agree with you, sir, or madam, or whatever. I don't agree with what you're doing, but I respect the fact that you grew up in a completely different life than me. Yeah. And can we not just sit, sit down at the table and talk about it and not be slinging hate and, and spewing vitriol because that's all we're doing. I mean, look at the news, all the news, it's not even news anymore. It's just people yelling about stuff. And, and and conditioning people more and more to be more afraid, and therefore more angry, and therefore more hateful, and it's just going to keep making everything worse. We're not going to have a country or a world that we're even going to want to live in, even if we can save the environment, even even if we can save all of these important things that we need to do. What's what's the point of saving it all if we're just going to hate each other on the other side? You know, it's 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 terrifying. But I really do think it's a tale as old as time, and it's something God's been trying to tell us. Through very so many different people and so many different times of human existence, yeah, you can either love each other and really work this out, or you're all going to suffer the consequences of your continued fear, you know. And and it's it's a tragedy, but we can do it. We got to love our way there. We cannot hate our way to a better future. We can only love our way there.
1: You said something earlier about not having um, the tools. Uh, certain people had different. Uh, were given different opportunities or different tools. And I want to go back to a conversation you we were talking about earlier about how you were raised and um, emotional trauma that is also generational. So mm. you had alluded to your mom, God bless her, did the best that she could, but yeah. you had hinted and flirted with the idea that she might have gone through like some rough times and it's kind of matriculated down into your life. Yeah, yeah. So uh, one— can you talk a little bit about the generational trauma and how it manifested in your life? And then what did you do to stop the cycle? I mean, clearly therapy, yes, and uh, art and support are here too. But what are you doing uh, moving forward to ensure that this isn't going to be a cycle that's repeated with your kids in the future?
0: Yeah. Um, when you're a kid, you don't have any context. All you know is your parents, and your parents are everything. And everything they say means the world, you know, that they—, they they're not wrong until you get to a point where you're like starting to kind of have your own opinions or form some thoughts. And you're like, wait a minute, you know, I don't know that I agree with this. But at that point, there's been so much programming that's already happened. And, you know, my mom, unfortunately, because she was never, and I didn't, I didn't put all this together, obviously, when I was a kid, but my mom was herself very abused, psychologically abused by her mother. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that had to do with like, Perfectionism. If my mom didn't do something exactly right, then my grandmother would hold out love on, on her or her siblings, you know, like you stupid, you didn't do it right or you didn't do this or I can't believe you embarrassed me like this, that and the other way. Mm-hmm. Now, my mom, the irony is that my mom, my whole life would talk about what a horrible mom her mom was and how she was never going to be that woman. And yet she became the spitting image of, you know, this is what happens with poor mental health. We don't realize just how out of control we are of our own thoughts, our own feelings, our own actions, because our bad programming, that literally our neuroplasticity is very real and it gets programmed all through your childhood. In fact, it's the most formidable time for it to be programmed. So as much as my mom might have wished or thought she was not going to be like my grandmother, she absolutely kept following in those footsteps and therefore became abusive to me and my sisters in some of those ways. We didn't do something right snap at, you know. My mom was like a borderline personality with some narcissistic tendencies. All all of that was was, you know, derived from her relationship with my grandmother, I have no doubt. But so all of that stuff was very traumatizing. Again, I didn't realize it until I was later on as an adult. And even then I didn't realize how traumatized I was. I didn't realize how much it was affecting me in the same way my mom didn't realize how much it was affecting her. And then at 37, I had a complete breakdown, like as I was saying, and I went to this therapy and I thought I had forgiven my mom who had passed away two years prior to that. I thought I had forgiven her uh, because I wasn't actively thinking ill will of, uh, of her, but not a chance had I forgiven her. There was still so much unresolved pain in me. And, but I was also, I hated myself because my mom never loved herself and I, I never saw an example of what it meant to love oneself. And I didn't get an example of what it meant. You know, I, my mom wasn't loving me or at least to the extent that I feel like she could have. I think my mom at, at many times during her tenure as my, as my mom would have believed wholeheartedly that she deserved a Mother of the Year award because she was doing her best. Now, this is a very difficult thing for us to recognize with anyone, right? If somebody's abusing us, how could they possibly be doing their best? How could they possibly? They must know. They must know that they're doing this. They must. They they know better. They know better. Guess what? They don't. They actually don't know better. They don't know that what they're doing is having the effect on you because that's not what they experienced. What they experienced was, this is what I, and again, a lot of it's so subconscious. There's so many things that are playing on our minds and in our hearts. And so going through this therapy and learning how to love myself for the first time and forgiving myself for all of these things that I was shaming myself for, talking to myself with the same voice that my mom and stepdad talked to me with as I was growing up. Not realizing, by the way, we don't realize our self-talk is the voice of those parents. If you had great parents, you got great self-talk. If you didn't have very healthy parents, then you don't really have great self-talk. And I, find, and I had to get to the point where I could just forgive myself. Well, in order to forgive myself, that means I had to radically accept that I was doing the best that I could. Oh, wait a minute. If I was doing the best I could, that means my mom was doing the best that she could. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. My mom was just a product of her environment. She legitimately, mm-hmm. like most all people, again, psychopaths and sociopaths, you with know, little asterisk there perhaps, but everybody else, is trying to survive this really gnarly, wonderful, but gnarly life and world that we are thrown into. And so that was one of the biggest breakthroughs for me is recognizing that it, it really and is. And it's a radical thing. You know, when you go through major traumas in your life, therapists will tell you, you know, well, you can either sit and dwell on it for the rest of your life, and you can be a victim for the rest of your life, or you can radically accept that it happened and move on and say, yeah. I don't, I can't fix that. I can't change that. I have to radically just accept it. And that's crazy and it's hard. And I'm, I'm not saying it's an easy thing to do and it's gonna be different for everybody as they do it. But as as the sooner I could get to the point where I could radically accept that this was my life, this was my mom, okay, that happened. Okay, and also uh, radically forgive my mom because I could recognize, I could see the five-year-old in her who was being traumatized by her mother And recognizing that my mom never intended to grow up to be this version of herself. This is the, she was this product. And then that led to the radical love that led to, I can absolutely love this woman. Even if I vehemently disagreed with the way that she raised me and my sisters and, and don't condone so much of what she did, I can still radically love her because she is worthy of that love. Because we all are. I mean, that's, to me, that's really, you know, so much of the heart of the book is like, and I know a lot of people have a hard, are gonna have a hard time wrapping their head around it, particularly when it comes to our abusers, but they are worthy of love. Every single one of us, even our abusers, even the most quote unquote evil people in the world are still deserving of love because I think that we are all miracles. Every single one of us, we're all extensions mm-hmm. of God's light and life and love. Some of us are not acting as those extensions. Some of us are acting as extensions of darkness and that's really sad and that's really tragic, but that's not because you start evil. I mean, look at how many five-year-olds are walking around and they're just fine. They're they're full of promise and naivete. And they see another kid. It doesn't matter what their race, religion, faith, doesn't matter what it is. They just want to go play ball with them. They're like, hi, I'm Bobby, you're Susie. Let's go play in the jungle gym. It, they are. There's a purity in there. There is something very real and pure uh, about that child's soul. And it's from there on that not because of choices that they've made, but because of choices their parents and family and and community and society make, that mold them into who they are. So are we just gonna hold that against them for the rest of their lives? Or are we gonna say, hey, I don't agree with what you're doing. I'm not gonna condone what you're doing. You're still responsible for your bad actions, but I'm not gonna dehumanize you. I'm not gonna call you a monster. I'm gonna hope that through loving you, you might be able to see that light that you can actually shine. And that's what I think a lot of people try to do in prisons right now with, you know, murderers on death row or things like that. It's interesting that we can almost make that leap more easily than we can make the leap to forgive and love our more intimate abusers like our parents, right? We can see people in prison who have literally killed someone, but recognize that, oh, they are traumatized and they were acting out of their really horrible abuse. And we can then almost like forgive them, you know, and again, a lot of the people that are doing the work with these people in prison are not the direct uh, recipients of that uh, abuse, so that you know, there's that too. But we can see that we treat. Do- I, I've said this many times before. It's insane that as human beings, we have more patience, grace, empathy, and understanding for dogs than we do for other human oh, beings. for sure. Because if you see yeah. a dog <laughs> in a corner snarling and biting and lashing out and even like attacking. What do you think? You don't think more often than not, some people might think that, oh, bad dog. But most people are thinking, oh, I feel so bad. That dog must have been incredibly abused. But we see that same behavior in a human being and we go, monster, evil, they should die. Shame, shame, shame. And that's not getting anyone anywhere.
1: Okay, okay. I have to interject at this point because in every response, there is this weaving in um, with your like faith background. Mm. So I have two questions. Were you raised in faith? And then the second question is at at one point in your journey, I don't know if it was around the time of what you referred to as like your breakdown that you felt like you lost God. So was that something that you were raised with and then you reacquainted with a relationship with God or was that something that you was a byproduct of your breakdown? So
0: yeah, I mean I was raised in a Christian home, you know, of of the Christian lineage, I suppose, you know, Christianity is a pretty broad swath of different sects and opinions and things. And, you know, like I didn't really grow up going to church. My mom was very um, anti-establishment and anti-authority and lots of things, but she was deeply spiritual and would have lots of gatherings at the house and, you know, have friends over and they would have deep uh, philosophical and spiritual conversations and whatnot. So I was raised in and around that stuff. And then at 18, I really decided to start going and try and figuring that out for myself because I didn't want to just believe something because my parents believed it. And that's been a really fascinating, powerful journey, me and God, for the last many, many moons. And it's taken lots of twists and turns, and it's evolved in lots of different ways. But ever since I was four, I've always had a very, very, I don't know, just strong portion of faith. I've always just known that there is a God, there is something bigger than all of us and all of this that is like the force in Star Wars that is flowing in and through all things.
1: So at what point did you feel like you lost God in your journey?
0: Well, right. So so that's what I was getting to. So, you know, then after feeling like I had been at least trying in earnest to keep following God and doing what I thought was right to do, even though I failed at it all the time, I made this big move to Austin, Texas, where I had these big plans, dreams that I believe God gave me to go build a community and uh, take care of people, a very altruistic kind of venture. And then I got to Austin and I felt like my whole life fell apart and I felt completely abandoned by God. And I did not feel his guidance anymore. I I, I felt alone. And, and then in that, the darkness consumed me and the lies from the darkness consumed me and I didn't want to live anymore. And fortunately, I had friends and family that were able to surround me. And my sister found this incredible organization that was able to set up these three weeks of super intensive life-saving therapy. And through that process, feeling God's love again through myriad, you know, ways, the instruction I was getting, sure, but this woman, particularly in the book, we call her Beth, was just an answer to prayer. She was like a conduit of a mother's love, God's love through a mother to me that genuinely helped save my life in that time and helped me to understand that I am worthy of love, no matter what I am or have done or have accomplished. And that's part of the message of the book that I'm trying to share with people, which is You know, by the way, we we're all kind of told these things throughout our life, but they never really landed with me. I still felt like, yeah, 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 I get it. Like, I'm worthy of being loved because I'm, you know, because I'm me or whatever. But we all still got to do something, don't we? We all still got to go accomplish whatever it is that we're supposed to accomplish. We're all these vessels or instruments. I'm going to go accomplish all the things that God has set out for me. And if I don't do that, I guess I failed. I've also come to the realization that we are all infinitely valuable and also entirely unimportant. God can use us for all manner of amazing things and also doesn't need us. And I think that that's actually a real big weight off of our shoulders. I think that we all think that if I don't do this, that, or the other, or if I do this, that, or the other, somehow I'm a failure. I haven't done it right. I missed the boat. I I screwed up my life, whatever it is. And I think God's up there, not laughing, but certainly has this Bit of a is he amused? If God yeah. can have a smirk, I don't know. He's like, "What are you thinking? You're you're like, we are all these infinitesimally small grains of sand in this massive mosaic of infinitesimally small specks of sand. We we really are insignificant. We are we are incredibly significant again, infinitely valuable, but entirely unimportant yeah. and." I think when we can tap into that and recognize that hey you know I'm good if I don't ever amount to anything other than what I've done in my life up to this point it's fine because I'm going to die and no one's going to remember I mean like again this is this to me this is more of an empowering thing than a than a sad thing but you know it's it's just context and perspective I mean how many emperors of full on empires that ruled millions and millions and millions of people who had the power to you know, slay someone in their own throne room, like ah, off with their head or whatever it is. They had all the power in the world. Do you know all their names? No. 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 You don't, nobody does, nobody remembers anything. All of these super famous people that live today, nobody's gonna remember who they are 100 years from now, 200 years from now, nobody's gonna remember. So we gotta take all that pressure off of our shoulders and recognize that like, hey, life, if nothing else, goes on. Yeah. It, I mean, there's a reason why some of the wisest people in the world have continued to tell us this over and over and over again. Like Life continues. Life moves on. Life goes on. This too shall pass. Whatever all of these things that we build up to be these incredibly difficult, insurmountable situations in our life are actually quite, quite, small and minimal. And again, that's not to diminish any of it or the importance of it. It's all very real and important in our lives, but it should hopefully give us a little more context so that we don't feel completely overwhelmed and buried by it. And instead just say, Hey, give yourself a break. Like that was one of the biggest things that I learned in all of this. And I'm still practicing because it's not just a one-stop shop fix. It's a, it's a, it's not a, a sprint. It's a marathon. It's a, it's a, it's a lifetime of healing yeah. and that's beautiful because every day you do a little more work and every day you love yourself a little bit more and every day you're able to love other people a little bit more. And um, I think that if we can just keep on encouraging people to do that, then we have a a shot at a good future. And if we can't, then I don't know what the future holds, I really don't. (laughs)
1: Listen, Zach, we are out of time and not on my end because I still have like two more pages of questions. You are a man of thoughts, you are a man of words. I'm excited for what you're doing. I'm so excited that you, I'm a woman of faith and seeing your journey lived out and, the platform that God has given you. You are using your anointing, your gifting, and your calling to reach so many people, not just on movie screens, but now on pages. I love the message of this book. I love what you're doing. I have a thousand more questions for you, but that just means you have to come back to the podcast for another time of day. We'll do it again. Well, I'll come back. Congratulations. I know the book. I'm going to prophesy and say that the book is going to be amazing and it's going to hit so many lists, Um, but I just appreciate your time. Thank you so much. And thank you for doing the hard work for mental health and advocating for those others who are struggling too. Bless you. Friends, thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode. As always, I love encouraging our guests that are on the show by letting them know how they've impacted our mind, our thoughts, or our heart. This week you can tag at Zachary Levi. His last name is spelled L-E-V-I. And let him know where you listen to the podcast, how it impacted you, or what you're gonna apply to your life. Till then, just know that I am grateful for you and grateful for this time that we get to spend together. As always, if you've enjoyed the podcast, we encourage you to download this podcast or subscribe at access more or wherever you listen to these fine podcasts. Until then, friends, I appreciate you and I'll catch you next week.